This morning we're going to be in John chapter 17, starting with verse 13 to the end of the chapter. And what we saw last time was the first 13 verses of this chapter, and we learned a lot about the Lord's Prayer, and today we're going to finish it off uh, with learning more aspects of the Lord's Prayer. And I think that as we start to, you know, study the scripture, we, are, we have knowledge, we understand the heart of God and the mind of God and, and God's plans, and that's, that's our whole desire. And I think what we've learned through this, and we're going to continue to learn, is what pl- prayer is really not. You know, prayer is not uh, a celestial wish list. I want, Lord, here's my, my list every day, this is what I want you to grant for me. Uh, prayer is not imposing our will upon a sovereign God, but really for his will to be evident in our lives. And for that to happen, we actually have to open up our lives and and let God in so his will can be imposed in our lives. And I submit to you that I've tried it both ways, and it certainly works a lot better when you're in tune with the Father. Uh, What it's not is fanfarinade, which is basically just just talking about stuff and, and maybe showing off for other people in prayer. So it's not any of those things. What it is about is it's about communion. It's about discussion. It's about a relationship with God. Right? That's what we have to get. Now, not everybody understands that. It reminds me of the two boys who went to their grandma's house for the weekend. Two brothers, and at nighttime, they both knelt down to pray. And the little brother is shouting, I want a new Nintendo. I want a new bike. I want a new VCR. I pray for these things. And the older brother nudges him and goes, what are you shouting for? God's not deaf. And the little brother looks up to him and he goes, I know, but grandma is. (laughs) So as we we go through this this morning, uh, I would just ask that whatever you came in with that's troubling you, that you leave it aside. And really try to understand the heart of God because he reveals himself to us in his word. And even better yet, this is an intimate prayer between God the Son and God the Father. There's so much we can learn about this as we continue through these verses. So starting with verse 13, Jesus continues praying to the Father, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one, for they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So continuing this prayer, Jesus again is praying, he's speaking to the Father about his disciples, and before we get to verse 20, we're going to see that some of this has an application for us. Number one, Jesus was coming out of the world. In a few hours from this point in time in his prayer, uh, he was going to be crucified, be buried, and then rise from the dead and eventually ascend to be with the Father. Number two, he wouldn't be with his disciples tangibly for the rest of their lives. So he leaves them with this joy, this peace, this um, comfort, which is supernatural. It's notwithstanding their circumstances, notwithstanding our circumstances. So this is available to us as well. And three, the world will hate the disciples. Why? Because they will expose the world's dark system. And, and, and the plan is, again, not for them to leave the earth, but to stay in the earth, but they would be persecuted. 
Now, I want to read a few short verses in John 3, starting with verse 19. Remember, what we're going to see here is, and this is impressive, the plans that God has for us. And one of those plans is for us to actually be an extension of himself. Of course, the Son came as an extension of the Father. And now Jesus leaves certain things for the disciples. And we're also going to find that there's certain things available to us as well. So 3.19, it says, Jesus says, This is the condemnation, that the light, salvation, the Son, the peace of God, all these wonderful things, the blessings, have come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. No thanks, God. No thanks, salvation, light, you know, any of that stuff, Son of God. We're doing fine over here. We like it like this. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So what is this world system? This world system is demonic. This world system, when Adam disobeyed God and he rebelled against God, he forfeited all of creation which was given to Adam to Satan. So that's why there's so much evil in the world. You know, when you ask that question, when your friends ask that, there's a whole understanding that comes with it. There's a whole history. So when Jesus speaks about the world, not necessarily the earth, he's speaking about the world system that's in rebellion against God. And we know that he's going to bring his kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's coming. It's in a future fulfillment to our time. So what they had to do is they had to be on the earth. However, they were going to get persecuted. Now, in Fox's Book of Martyrs, how many people have even perused Fox's Book of Martyrs? I'll say quite a few. It's basically a chronicling of all Christian persecution since Christianity came to be. If you look at that book and you read it, you'll find that the disciples, except for John, they were martyred. Right? At a certain period in their life, they were killed uh, for their faith in, in Jesus. So that was what's happened there. And, and my question is, actually, when I, before I continue, do you have a problem with the word Satan? Do you have a problem with the word devil? Do you not believe in demons? Well, they're there. How do you explain some of the things that happen on this earth? You know, you hang out with a law enforcement community long enough, and you'll find the things that they see, the things that, that I've seen over the years, it, there's no other explanation for it what people do to each other, what people do to their children. There is evil on this earth. And now what do we have? Shootings are the new normals. For, over since the last few years, it's just been increasing. There's was, was just some more shootings out in California. All right? It's the unraveling of society. However, this is going to set up the world for a leader, a hero, a champion, a messiah figure, which we know in Revelation as the Antichrist. Because the world is going to call for more controls of the banking system so we don't have these crashes. Controls over the economy, controls for gun control. All these things are going to happen. And the United States and Switzerland and a few other countries are in the way right now for this globalization. You put all that power in one person's hand and what do you have? A megalomaniac. How many times have we seen that through history? Some of, some of you here, you've lived long enough, you've seen that in your lifetime. However, let's go back to the concept at hand. The believers were going to be persecuted by the world because, of course, Satan doesn't want to release those that he has in blindness and bondage. 
He doesn't want to give them up to God. And he's going to fight with anybody who tries to do that. This new... Um, how many of you have read Voice of the Martyrs at least once? Any of the, the periodical, which chronicles Christian persecution? Again, it's been around for the last few decades. This is a very controversial one because this one, in February 2013, it says, when children become the target. This one chronicles, outside of the United States, people who just want to be Christians in hostile governments, in hostile surroundings, and now they go after their children. It's controversial because we don't want to read about this stuff. We want to stay in our nice American Western bubble. Christianity's nice over here. Over there, it's not popular. But they are our brothers and sisters. How do we reconcile Jesus' prayer for God's protection over the disciples and then them dying a martyr's death? Doesn't that seem contradictory? A few things. There are things, <laughs> whether it's the disciples or us, that God protects us from. No matter how bad we have it, there's two principles that are at, at work. Number one is somebody usually has it worse. And number two, what about the things that could have happened to me but God has protected me from? We probably won't see that until we're in the kingdom. He may open up a, a file cabinet and start the video and say, these are all the things that could have happened to you, but I was protecting you. So I think sometimes we, we live in, in a society where we're so self-absorbed that we don't see things outside of ourselves. So they were being protected. And also, remember, Peter was in jail, and the angel opened up the prison and let him out to continue preaching. So they were protected, and we've been protected. And then, eventually, when they were done glorifying God with their lives, they were allowed to be taken. Now, this is a hard concept, again, because there's a lot of doctrines in Christianity that come into Western Christianity, that we should always be healthy, we should always be well. We should always have money in our pocket. We should always have savings account because God wants you to have those things. Well, how do we rectify that with persecuted believers? Does that mean that they're second class or they didn't have enough faith? Remember, we're here to glorify God, believers. And if you're a new believer, that might be a hard concept for you to understand. However, I was promised salvation. I'm going to heaven when I die because Jesus promised me that. So guess what? I want as many people, starting with this room, to go to heaven because I'm going to heaven. Do I want to keep all my marbles for myself, my toys? No. I want to spread the love. You know, I want everybody to get to heaven. Everyone I contact with. Everyone I pray for. Everyone in the world. You'll believe that once you understand the truth of salvation. So when we start to glorify God, we put a target on our back. Satan, he, he goes, okay, I see you on the radar. Okay, you want to be a hero? No problem, I'll fix your wagon. I'll take care of you, take that. You know, He starts throwing things your way because you're interrupting his, his kingdom in this world. In Revelation 11, the two witnesses, this is great. These two prophets do incredible miracles. And they, for a time, they witness and they, they're a picture of, uh, they reflect God's glory. And then eventually later, they're allowed to be, to, to be killed, but God takes them to heaven. We see that in the Revelation study. So, why did the world hate the disciples? For the same reason the world will hate you when you stand up for the Lord. This is a war of attrition. This is a war that you won't see on television. It's a war behind the facade of the temporal realm. And the stakes are high. 
the stakes are for the souls of men and women. Do you want to be a part of that? I certainly do. Once you know the truth, once you have received of God's love and his, his care for you, you just, that's all you want to do. So I would ask you this, as your pastor, I covet your prayers. Have your children pray for me too. You know, there would be times when my wife and I would just not be right in the frame of mind, so we would make our son pray because God listens to him. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not right right now. Hey, let, let's just be real. Let's keep it real. You know, he loves the prayers of the little children. Verse 15, he says, keep them, meaning the disciples and certainly us, from the evil one. We also see this in Matthew 6, right? The, what was considered, some people call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer where he taught the disciples how to pray. Keep us from evil. Now, demonic influences can go in two directions. Sometimes we get fixated on the the pressures and the trials. And, you know, hey, I'm just trying to serve the Lord. Where is this coming from? And and we know that there's a source to it. There's an evil source to it. Because there's no other thing that can explain it. And the Bible explains it, actually. But sometimes we get fixated on the trials and we we forget about the temptations. Well, if you read the book of James, the first few chapters, you'll understand temptation. That means basically where we may have, because we still are in the flesh, even though we're believers, we still sin. Deep inside of our flesh, we may have these uh, sinful desires. And the Bible tells us that what Satan will do is he will put, and, and you'll experience it if you've been a Christian for a while, all of a sudden he'll put a temptation in front of you. And what happens? There's no sin to be tempted, but the sin happens when we see that temptation and we fixate upon it and we marry it to our sinful desires and we make that connection. It's almost like Jesus is a fisher of men, but so is the devil. He's got his rod and his lure. And you know, some of you are fishermen. I see you're on Facebook, the big fish that you caught. And what do you do? You can't be an impatient fisher. Right? If you're a fisherman, you sit there, you cast your, you know, the line, and you have, you know, that bait didn't work, you reel it in, you try another bait until you catch the fish that you're looking for. That's what Satan does too. And he'll use different baits to try to tempt us and to try to get us to fall. So, that, so the ultimate desire is to destroy us, and if he, if he could have his way, is that God wouldn't use us. So we look at trials, but we also look at temptations, which can be just as bad. Remember the Israelites, when, often when they sinned, you know, when uh, Balaam couldn't curse them. What he did was he set a, a snare for the Israelites, and then they started this, this, these orgies and stuff, and God, God punished them. So it wasn't, it wasn't a direct satanic pressure, but it was a temptation that he put in front of them, and that caused their own demise. So that's something to consider. Before we move to the next section, um, Jesus speaks about joy. And we're going to go into the historical aspect of the gospel uh, next Sunday. But before we do that, I want to cover one more word on joy. And I want you to turn to Hebrews 12, starting with verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. This is the last word on joy before we move on into the historical aspect of the crucifixion and such. Hebrews 12.1, therefore also, we also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Believers, we all have purpose. God wants to use us in a mighty way. And we run this race of the Christian life, not to hang out on the sidelines, but just to keep pushing ourselves. You know, how many runners here? You push yourself and you push yourself and you're offended that Lance Armstrong was doping, you know what I'm saying? Because it's not fair, right? Um, cycling and running and all that kind of stuff because you want to be on equal level and you run the race to win. Two, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So this should really give us encouragement. This word joy we often think, well, if I'm having a bad day and people are getting on my case, well, I'm, I'm unhappy. I can't have joy. But when you find a seasoned Christian and you see, it's almost odd, it's almost surreal that they can have joy in the midst of their sufferings. Here is Jesus for the joy that was set before us. You in this room, you and I, we were the joy that was set before Jesus. He endured the cross. Well, you might say, yeah, that must have been really painful. And they put those, you know, when they crucified him and he bled to death and, and all these things happened. But it's even worse than that because he was perfect. As the son of God, he never had, he knew what sin was, but he never sinned. So now all of our sins up until thousands of years, until as long as mankind exists, gets dumped on Jesus Christ. But for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and he rose again and he sat down at the right hand of the father. It is finished. He paid for my sin and your sin. That's why it's so offensive when religion tries to interject other things. Oh, Jesus, well, that was good that he did that for you. But you still, you have to give us money. Or you have to do these works. Or you have to pray so many times. That's offensive. Because Jesus, he, he finished that. You know, he despised the shame because of the joy that was set before him, which was us. So I think that's a, a good example that we can emulate. The fact that whatever we're going through, we can still have that joy. It's still available. Verse 17. Jesus says, Sanctify them or set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. This is what I was talking about, this extension. You see this, this continuing extension. Okay? Um, the father sends the son. The son's now, the son worked on the disciples for three plus years, and then they were to, to uh, disciple others, and this great message of salvation was to be spread through all of mankind by one son of God and really 11 disciples, because Judas was taken out and they did replace him. Uh, but you see what's going on here. He says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's why. At Calvary Chapel, we focus so much on the Word of God because the Word of God is a cleansing agent. It's a scrubbing agent. You ever work on a, a car, a greasy, dirty car, and you're just filthy, or you're working out in the yard, and you're just dirty, and you just go take a jump in the shower, and you, you see all that stuff come off of you? The Word of God is a cleansing agent. It does a deep cleaning, and it also removes the blinders of this world. Right? Now, everything starts to make sense. There's truth. But what, if, what does the world say that we live in? This world is, says, what is truth? As Pilate said, what is truth before the Lord? 
It's relative. It's pluralistic. It's dualistic. It's amazing how, how in mathematics, there's certain equations that can only be solved in one way. In one way. There's only one answer. Algebraic equations, geometric equations. Why? Because if you do it wrong and you're trying to build the, the building or you're trying to build the, the airplane, and you just say, well, whatever, whatever truth works, what happens is that plane won't fly or may crash or that building may come down. But it's amazing as when it comes to spiritual things that this world is okay with saying, well, your truth, my truth, it doesn't matter. They can both exist at the same time. That's pluralistic. But God says, there's one truth. I don't confuse you. There's one truth. It's my truth. It's the truth that I set up. Gravity, there's a, what is it, 9.8 meters per second square. You throw anything from a building, and that's the rate that, that it falls at. That we, we're in one atmosphere of pressure. God makes it very simple for us. So why do we as humans change the rules when it comes to spirituality? That's even more important than mathematics and geometry, especially when this world is passing away and his kingdom is coming. Eternity and souls are much more important than mathematics, but here, mathematics are very important. God says there's truth. He says, Jesus says, to sanctify them, to make them holy, to set them apart for God's service. Does this mean sinless? Absolutely not. However, it's to make them productive for God's use. To make, the, to make us productive for God's use. Again, the more you live as a believer and you experience all the blessings of God, you don't want to keep it to yourself. Especially starting with your loved ones. Starting with the, the, the guy who's pumping gas, the girl at the checkout counter. You look at them and they just seem like they're just going through the motions in life. You want them to have that as much as you have it. The more you understand it. And we are to be set apart for God's use. One of the biggest problems that happen in Christianity is when we're not set apart for God's use. I have another periodical. It's called the Berean Call. How many of you have read the Berean Call? Quite a number of you. This guy is pretty solid, the team that works on this. And, you know, it's not, actually, it's not a very popular periodical. He actually posts all the nasty letters that he gets. But what he does is, or he... Um, Dave, Dave Hunt and T.A. McMahon, they uh, chronicle trends in Christianity, and they go back to the Scripture. See, we all like trends in Western Christianity because there's just so much to choose from. Well, he goes and he says, you know what, this isn't right, and this is why it's not right. This is what the Scripture says why it's not right. What he tries to do is help people to, to go down the wrong road. Actually, in this article, or this periodical, uh, the newest one, the first article is the demise of biblical discernment. If we're going to be used by God, we have to have discernment. And if we're going to have discernment, it's got to be based on the scripture. Now, I may make some unhappy people with my next statement, but it's not like it hasn't happened before. Um, there's a New York Times best-selling Christian book called The Harbinger. A lot of people are going after this book. Some of you might even have it in your library. Listen, I understand the premise of repentance. It's a great premise. However, what he does is he uses a gross misapplication of the scripture, starting in Isaiah, to say that this had to do with the United States. Absolutely not. There's a specific interpretation and understanding of these scriptures, and what he does is he extends them into the United States. No, not so. 
It's great to talk about repentance, but it isn't great to fudge with God's scriptures so that you can write a book and make a lot of money. The, the cover is pretty catchy. It's got the Twin Towers burning, and everybody's excited about what's in here, this repentance. Great message, but it's done the wrong way. The ends don't justify the means. You've heard that. Right? To do something wrong, to get to an answer, is still wrong. So the disciples, they must stay on the earth. However, here's the trick. They're not to be of the earth or of the world. Chuck, Chuck Smith actually used a great example. He said that Christianity is like a boat and the world is like the ocean. And Christianity does really well when it floats on the ocean and it doesn't sink. The problem comes when water gets into the boat. Enough water gets into the boat, that boat that could normally float for a long time will start to go down and it'll sink to the bottom of the ocean. When we become like the world, we're starting to take on water. We've sprung a leak. We've got to start bailing. We've got problems now in our own lives and in the Christian community. We're not to be of the world. We're supposed to be setting the example, but just like the Israelites in Christianity, a lot of the world is getting into Christianity and it's not looking much different. That's a problem. That's where discernment has to come in. So they were to be of the, uh, in the world, but not of the world. Right? Now he says, he says, he asks for their protection, and he also wants them to be set apart, Jesus says, as I was set apart. Christ came into the world to be set apart from the world, so he wouldn't be of the world. He says, as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. Do you understand the implications of this? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that anyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you realize that when he went back to heaven, he left certain people to continue his work? Do you realize that we can be an extension? Now, let me be careful with this, of John 3.16. He wants us to carry on his work. So for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, right, to through his word in the future for Joan to be discipled and for her to affect other people. That's pretty impressive. He doesn't just have us sit back and say, watch, watch, I'm going to do, I'm going to let the angels do all my work. You guys just sit back and, and just watch what's going on. He wants us to be active participants in what he's doing in this world. How's that for a guidance counselor? You know, I remember, I still remember my high school guidance counselor. What do you want to do with your life? I didn't even know what I wanted to do with my life in college. But hey, all the great answers are, I want to save the world. I want to do something that's bigger than me, you know, and you just change your major so many times. But here's spiritual guidance counseling. What do you want to do with your life? Do you want to save the world? Do you want to do something that's bigger than you? Well, join the Lord's team. Jesus said that the laborers are few, but the harvest is ripe. I need, I need people to help me out here. Actually, he doesn't need us to help him, but he, he lets us help him. And that's pretty neat. So Christ is the brains of the operation, but we can be an extension. And somewhat like the, the surgeon who uses a scalpel. And he picks the finest, sharpest scalpel to take that cancer out of the patient. And if he, if he let the scalpel go, the scalpel couldn't do anything. It would just fall to the ground or fall into the person. But through his brain, the surgeon, he's able to maneuver that thing and to excise that tumor and take it out, that destructive tumor. And the, the surgeon gets all the glory. But you know what's really neat? He got to use that scalpel. Right? 
Verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is he speaking about here? All right, amen. <laughs> Us. In 2013, when we read this book, it isn't just a religious book. This book has you in mind. I love that. I love that. As he's praying to the Father, Jesus is earnestly praying to his Father. And he's saying, Father, in 2013, I want to use Terry. I want to use Vicky. I want to use Rosine. By name, he knows us. I want to use Sandra. I want to use James. He had all of us in mind when he prayed this prayer. Who is he speaking about? Those who would come to believe in the faith. You're seven years old, you're eight, you're ten. Speaking about you as well. Boy, you've got some future ahead of you this morning, don't you? So you said, gee, I just came to to hear some of the word and I want to feel good for the day. And you didn't realize that you were going to come face to face with God speaking to you through his word and, and giving you a purpose in your life. That's amazing. He knew, A, the day of my conception, physically. My mother's still alive. She's a wonderful woman. He also knew the day that I would be born again spiritually. He knows both of our birthdays. And he knows what he wants to do with us. He wants them and us to be covered in prayer and success. How did we come, become believers? How did we become believers? through the sanctification of these men and women who are willing to follow Jesus and sacrifice part of their lives for the cause of salvation. And then we read their word. How do other believers come to faith? Oftentimes through our sanctification. Is is Matthew hanging around somewhere or Luke or John or any of these guys? No. They've gone to be with the Lord. But we're here. Through our sanctification process, God is going to use us to bring others into the kingdom. I don't know about you, but that's exciting. It's all part of God's ecosystem. I wonder if the disciples now, you know, and they're in glory and they're praising God, I wonder if every once in a while God, I don't know what he does, I don't know what his rules are up there, if he just kind of opens things up and says, hey, look down there. Look, you guys were willing to give up so much, and you suffered, and you died a martyr's death, but look, Look what's going on in the world. I don't think they care about their suffering much more anymore. The Bible says that there'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain. For the former things have passed away. So the Bible promises me that when I get into the kingdom, I don't even have emotional issues. I don't wake up and get depressed. I don't even know if we ever sleep up there. No idea. But it's going to be great. We'll never say, I'm having a bad day today. (laughs) There's just some phrases that don't exist. Verse 21. That they all may be one as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. There's that unity that he speaks about. There's that mutual indwelling that he speaks about. Wow. Again, even when we're married or we're with our kids, flesh and bone prevents us from mutual indwelling as human beings. Because when you go past the skin, it gets kind of gross. You know, there's blood vessels and fat and muscle tissue. And so, you know, your grandma comes and they, they pinch your cheeks. Because that's, that's you, you know. That's, that's what they can get a hold of. You know, there's no mutual indwelling there. 
Imagine getting into somebody's mind, into their heart. For some, that could be a scary thought. But mutual indwelling between us and the Father and the Son. Wow. I'm going to say this, that our knowledge and love of God is only limited by our self-imposed boundaries and sin. Let me just repeat that. Our knowledge and love of God is only limited by our self-imposed boundaries and sin. I've heard the expression, you can have as much of the Holy Spirit as you ask for. Actually, Jesus says that when we pray. Do we want the Holy Spirit? Do we want to be guided? Do we want to be active? We can have it. But it's self-imposed, if there's any boundaries at all. Last word on unity. The Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks said this, Division and discord become no Christian. For wolves to worry lambs is no wonder. But for lambs to worry lambs is unnatural and monstrous. So unity is is very big and it's very important. We work together as a team. Verse 22. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Sometimes I read the scripture and I ask myself, why does Jesus keep repeating himself? He doesn't have to, he's God. He could just say it once. I believe the issue lies with the hearers. So let me throw myself into the lot with everybody here this morning. Sometimes we need to hear that God loves us. Sometimes we go through life and it's a routine. Sometimes we go through life and the heartaches. And you know what I'm finding in my age group and older, the heartaches become worse. You lose your parents. You start to have problems physically. This is the, real, this is the, the new normal uh, in my age group and above. And we need to hear that God loves us notwithstanding the troubles that we face. He wanted the disciples to know that they were loved. He wants us to know that we're loved. Harold in the back and John behind him and Gary in the back and Sue up there in the balcony. He wants us to know that the Father loves us as the Father loved the Son. Are you kidding me? He can love me as much as he loves the Son? Absolutely. His love knows no boundaries. Now, what does he say here? He speaks about glory. And I said last Sunday that you don't steal God's glory. It belongs to him. Wow, it does appear that Pastor Joe has painted himself into a corner because Jesus speaks about us having glory. Let me, let me express the difference here. In Exodus 34, Moses was communing with God. God was, you know, Moses was the bearer of the Ten Commandments. And when Moses would spend time with God, he would come down from the mountain and his face shone, it glowed. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with, you ever look your best and you go into a social event and they say, you're glowing today. I don't know. A lot of our expressions actually come from the scripture. But Moses glowed and his glow was so amazing that the Israelites were actually a little frightened. What did Moses have to do? When he spoke with God, he was just speaking with God. When he talked to the people, he put a veil so that they wouldn't be distracted, so they wouldn't be frightened. But whose glory was that on Moses' face? Was it Moses's? No, just like it won't be ours. It's God. He's reflecting God's glory. And I love my, my favorite expression is the, is the, the moon. When you see the moon and it's, it's a certain type of you know, alignment of the planets, our moon is ugly. 
It's gray, it's cratered, it's kind of nasty looking. However, on a beautiful night, a dark night, where the sun is just right and it shines on the moon, but it's at a point of, in our atmosphere where we can't see it, right? But, the, but it's shining against the moon. And it actually, I look up sometimes at night and I see the moon, it's beautiful. It almost has a purple or bluish haze to it. Moon during the day is ugly. But on a moonlit night, it's gorgeous. Why? Because it reflects the light of the sun. It isn't the luminosity of the moon, but it's of the sun. So understand that God wants us to have, he wants us to reflect his light. Wow. This is, this is good stuff here. He really wants to work through us. Um, you know, he wants to work through you. I think some of American Christianity is failing because it keeps God at an arm's distance. You might say, that's preposterous, but that's true. Keeps God at an arm's distance. Any ministry that keeps God at an arm's distance may look good on the outside, but it's dying on the inside. Let's not keep God at a distance. He knows our sin. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our framework anyway. Let him in. Let him into your life. We don't want Christianity to become a routine. There's been thousands of years of Christianity. Sometimes it's a culture. Why do you believe? Well, because my parents raised me this way. That's not the answer. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Last few verses here. Jesus in verse 24 saying that they may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. After the crucifixion, Jesus ascended, or he actually was resurrected first. And 1 Corinthians 15 says he appears to many. I think at one point it said over 500 at one time. Well, it had to be that way because, remember, the Roman government became very hostile towards Christianity. And the Jews actually were enjoying some freedoms in the Roman government, but that was about to change. And they felt that because Christianity came from Judaism, they were also somewhat hostile, some of them, to this, this belief, this faith. So in order for Christianity to survive, they had to believe in something that was bigger than the world. Because if you're an earthly person and you just think of the world, well, what's going to happen if you're faced with death? You'll say anything. You'll sell out anybody just to stay alive because all you know is the earth. Well, the Christians knew that there was heaven, that there was an afterlife, that there was an eternity. So you wonder why the Roman government was still killing them and persecuting them and they still were growing and flourishing. They couldn't stamp it out because they beheld the glory of Jesus. We also behold his glory when we become believers because Christ reveals himself to us as believers. Remember, don't hold him at an arm's distance. Let him into your life. So what do we have from this? We have, as we cover this chapter of prayer, number one, we are benefited with the ability to understand and know God. Two, to be protected by God. Three, the assurance of salvation. Four, eternal security. I'm taking it all together because we covered this last Sunday as well. 
Five, insight into the spiritual realm. Six, joy and abundant life here. Seven, sanctification. Eight, purpose and being used by God to bring others into the kingdom. Nine, reflecting God's glory. Ten, unity. And eleven, mutual indwelling and mutual love. Warren Wiersbe kind of sums this up in his book, Be Transformed. Uh, And I'm just going to read this short paragraph here. He said, it is not enough merely to study the Bible and learn a great deal of doctrinal truth. We must also love Jesus Christ more as we learn all that he is and all that he has done for us. Learning and loving should lead to living, allowing the Spirit of God to enable us to obey his word. This is how we glorify God in this present evil world, and the world is becoming more evil. If you've come into this place and you know, your attitude is, well, I came in with somebody and you know, I'm not really sold on this, I'm not, I'm not there yet. You know why? Because you're still tethered to the earth. You're still attached to this earth. How long is it going to take before you look around and realize that this place is passing away? That we cannot sustain the energy, the, you know, the, the human you know, participation, all, all these type of events. What do we do when we have all these things that I explained? Do we sit on the couch and become spiritual couch potatoes? The answer is no. God never blesses and sanctifies and seals for no reason. Too much of American Christianity has become a spectator sport. Well, ministry was for the disciples. Today, ministry is for the pastors. I just get to sit, watch, feel good on a Sunday, and then kind of feel good for the rest of the week. That's not scriptural. The body of Christ pulled together in the early days, and if they didn't, there would be no body of Christ. There wouldn't, there couldn't have been just been a few people doing it. They had to work together. We see that in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 13, and 14. Do you love Jesus? Then serve him. Do you love his word? Then read it. Sometimes believers are unfulfilled because they're disobedient to God's instructions and his mandates in the scripture. We have been given so much by God. What are we going to do with it? Remember the parable of the talents. It was sinful for the one man who was given so much to take his talent and bury it in the ground. Does that mean we're all going to be pastors? No. We're all going to be missionaries? No. We're all going to be the head of some ministry? Absolutely not. If you're a new believer, pray about what your spiritual gift is and use it. Use it to his glory. I'm impressed that there are so many that have so many gifts that I don't have. And they look at me, well, you're the pastor. And that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. But some of you have some amazing gifts that God has not given me. And I love to watch you use them. I think the biggest lie that we can believe is that we're insignificant. As the population on the planet grows, people look in the mirror and say, I'm insignificant. That is a lie from the devil. I'm not loved. I'm insignificant. God's forgotten about me. Those are all lies. Don't believe them. Christ's prayer is for us to be poured into, for us to be built up and edified so we can pour into others, pass it on. I believe as this world becomes more depraved, and we can bury our heads in the sand and say, no, it's not true. All you got to do is look every morning, look on the news, and that's only a, a snapshot of society. I believe that We also need to pour our love, time, and wisdom into others. And you might say, Pastor Joe, 
um, well, what difference can I make? The difference that you can make is to the one person you're pouring into. We can't save the world. God can do that. However, we might be able to make a difference in this area if we all follow the mandates that God is for us. I would love for you guys to come to me and just tell me in prayer what God showed you about your gifts and how you're using them. See, that's the great return on his investment. God invests in us. He also expects a rate of return. Why? To glorify him. That's his ecosystem. So that one day when we're in heaven and we, and we look back and God says, look what, you talked to that person, that talk to, person talked to another, and that person became a preacher. So many stories, D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, you know, just the, the people that poured into their lives a little bit. So that we would look at this prayer and apply it to our lives and just pray this week to see what God has for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. Um, just loving, just listening to Jesus speaking to you. Uh, it's not like.